Well, welcome to Posterity Podcast, a discussion of unusual subjects that touch the lives of everyday people from a Christian worldview. Once again, this is Mike Carmen sitting alongside Jay Carmen, otherwise known as the Overlords of the UFO, coming to you from cul-de-sacs in two mysteriously undisclosed locations in Ohio and Tennessee via the internet. How are you, Jay? What's going on? I am good, thank you. I am sitting here in my undisclosed location, and it's we're not going to do weather reports today. It's, <laughs> <laughs> this is less Nesman. That's right. <laughs> but Jay, Thanks, you Jim. could be the winner of the Golden Buckeye Newshawk Award. That's you just right. don't know it. You know? That's right. Give us the weather. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm sitting here in, in uh, here in Ohio, and it's comfortable. So. Yeah, you, you wanted to start talking about the weather, right? I there, started to, yeah, I had to, I had to censor myself. <laughs> yeah, we do that oh, every time. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> oh, the weather's fine here. Let's move yeah. on. <laughs> All is fine here. Well, today we are into a second discussion on Richard M. Dolan's book, UFOs in the National Security State. Chronology of a Cover-Up, 1941 to 1973. This is the revised uh, edition. It's also the first volume of a two-volume work that he has done. And in this episode, we're just going to talk a little bit about chapters one and two. Chapter one is titled Prologue uh, to 1947. And chapter two is Saucers in the Sky, 1947. Well, before we get into this, Jay, give us a little bit of background on Richard Dolan. Yeah, Mike and I are talking tonight about one of his textbooks on the history of UFOs. And he is primarily a, a textbook writer, does a lot of research in the field of UFOs. Dolan, Richard M. Dolan, is an author publisher in Rochester, New York, currently owns his own company called uh, Richard Dolan Press. He's been doing that since well, about 22 years, so since the year 2000. He is most remembered, I think, in the UFO field because of his research on the subject, but he takes it very much from a historical point of view. He is a graduate of the University of Rochester. He has his master's degree in history uh, from there and has applied his historical research methods to this particular field. If you look at his publishing list, for example, the books that he has on publication sites like Amazon, the book that we're covering is one of his earlier ones. It's the chronology of a UFO cover-up. UFOs in the National Security State, chronology of a cover-up, 1941 to 1973. It's the first in a two-volume set. The second volume is UFOs in the National Security State, the cover-up exposed, 1973 to 1991. It, these are not the only two books that he's published on the history behind the UFO phenomena. His most recent, I think, is UFOs for the 21st Century. If you take his work as a whole and look at what he's done, he is probably the best researched author. Just covers in a massive amount of information. This particular book that we're dealing with, the first volume in the set, the two-volume two set, is 400 and some pages of text and then another 100 and some pages of just documentation. Just does a phenomenal job. And uh, anyway, we're going to cover a couple of chapters tonight. You want to kind of explain that? 
Yeah. So chapter one deals with the prologue of the phenomena up to 1947. Chapter two just deals with saucers in the sky is what it's titled 1947. So for Dolan, I believe 1947 is the launch year for the phenomena in the modern era. And certainly the United States government's interest and study of it. For those of you that aren't aware, the United States Air Force had three official studies prior to the present day on the subject of, of UFOs. The first one was called Project Blue Book, which the United States Air Force oversaw from 1952 to 1969. And all of that data was turned over to the Condon Committee, headed up by Dr. Edward Condon, who closed that study out and said, hey, there's really nothing here worth continuing to put money into to research. So they shut it all down. Prior to Project Blue Book, the United States Air Force had two smaller projects with which they looked into the phenomena. The first one was called Project Sign, and it was established in 1947, which seems to be the launch year for people's interest in the subject. And the second one was called Project Grudge in 1948. So that brings us, that just gives, a, gives us a little bit of background info on the subject so yeah so, and yeah. don't yeah it does and dolan he, he acknowledges that even prior to 1947 there was a long history of unidentified sightings things flying around in the air even into the late 1800s he acknowledges that but his primary interest is on the united states and the development of a national security state approach to the study of ufos and he really kicks that off in 1947, kicks, treats 1947 as sort of the kickoff year for that. Right. In our previous discussion of this book, we covered the introduction and the conclusion. And then we left everything in between for later discussions. So we're just going to get right into some of the meat of this book. So chapter one is called Prologue to 1947. And the first subtitle is UFOs Before World War II. Most people who have an interest in the subject know that the United States Air Force, actually the United States Armed Services, I believe the Army and the Navy, prior to the National Security Act of 1947, which established the Air Force, during World War II, it was the Army and the Navy that encountered Foo Fighters. And of course, if you go even back further, we know that it wasn't it in the 1880s or the 1890s when there were all these airship sightings that unidentified aerial ships yes yeah, yeah basically they looked like if i remember correctly modern day blimps yeah some were and identified some, as right as like almost like dirigibles or blimps yeah. what we would call a blimp now yeah and some people didn't some people actually claim to see sailing ships in the sky that one i don't remember but that would not surprise me and, and i'm not sure that all of the craft that were I would say most of the ones that were reported, and these popped up in newspapers across the United States, especially in the West and in the Midwest, but not all of the, most of those that were reported appeared to be like blimps, lighter than airships. Yeah. And of course, there's some speculation that that's exactly what they were, that people were, people or companies were experimenting with lighter than air. But I don't know that all of them were described that way. Certainly there were some there are some history accounts, older history, that describe vague lights, things flying around like discs or cylinders and 
things like that. That does come up. But in the United States, it does seem to be more prior to 1947, prior to World War II, prior to World War I. Yeah, lighter than air. Uh, something that has the appearance of a lighter than airship. Yeah, those airship sightings of the late 1880s, 1890s or so, those are fascinating to me. I don't know what, how much stock I put in them, but the reason it seems to me that somebody reported seeing a sailing ship, the, the reason that comes to mind is because in the book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, when Robert Bigelow was doing his study for basically the def, uh, the DOD or the Defense Intelligence Agency, there's one report of a, I think it was the ranch manager who said that he saw a Winnebago flying, <laughs> flying on his property against the you know the backdrop of some hills, and this thing um, I, I can't can't remember if it got a little closer or went further away, but it was clearly. It clearly looked like a Winnebago. I wish I had talked about that story. I'm going to have to go back and look that up. But yeah, he said he saw this giant Winnebago. But anyway, in chapter one, the prologue to 1947, I just want to read the first paragraph because I think he does a good job of setting the tone for this chapter. So he says, concerning UFOs before World War II, he says it's quite possible that UFOs have existed for a millennia. A steady stream of reports stories might be a better word appears through the centuries some of them suggestive of modern reports of course most of these stories were not about spaceships although some of them were people rather interpreted what they saw in terms and concepts they knew best they saw fiery wheels or chariots in the sky conversed with fairy folk or had visions of god angels and demons while the accounts are certainly worth collecting there is not much we can do with them other than reflect on the possibilities they suggest. Ultimately, they remain just stories. I would say that that is also true up until 2017 when these really nice-looking, well-filmed or well-videoed UAPs right. off the Nimitz, off the USS Nimitz, and uh, a couple of other carriers were filmed that was a little bit more definitive proof. We walked away with a little bit more than just UFO reports. But he says, toward the end of the 19th century, the number of these stories spiked upward. So one of the things he talks about, and this is obviously the tone of the book, is that there is a national security connection between UFOs and the security of a nation as these UFOs appear in various places and at various times and Sometimes they are in places they should not be, around installations they should not be, and they do have a great capacity to change people's worldview. People that remember this subject or have studied this subject and remember something about World War II know that what was claimed to have been seen by pilots fighting over in Europe and maybe even the Pacific were these things called Foo Fighters, right? Right. Yeah, I think there was once a rock band named Foo Fighters, isn't that yep. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, still is, yeah. <laughs> was right. really, okay. I couldn't tell you anything about their music, but I just thought, <laughs> that's a great name for a group, Foo Fighters, yeah. you know. So he tells this one story. He says, um, in September of 1941, in the early morning hours of a clear night out in the Indian Ocean, a sailor aboard the USS Pulaski, a Polish vessel, 
converted for the British military saw a strange globe glowing with greenish light about half the size of the full moon as it appears to us. So he alerts his gunner and the two watch the object as it followed them for the next hour. He goes on to talk about the not-so-tame incident in Los Angeles in February of 1942 when a number of identified unidentified aircraft flew over the city of Los Angeles and apparently caused a blackout. At least a million residents woke to an air raid siren around 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> the U.S. Army personnel fired 1,430 rounds of anti-aircraft shells to bring down what they assumed were Japanese planes. But they weren't Japanese planes. And George Marshall wrote a memorandum to President Roosevelt about the incident, which remained classified until 1974. Interesting, because it was all in the Los Angeles newspapers. But Marshall concluded that conventional aircraft were involved, probably commercial sources operated by enemy agents for the purpose of just spreading alarm. I've always thought this was a great story, but I never really knew what to think about it. And he doesn't really bring it to any definitive conclusion here. But he does say that there were six civilian deaths involved as a result of, I guess, all this barrage. Yeah, uh, some, of the, some of the shells returned to Earth and unfortunately took American lives, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty I, crazy. There's a, a very well-known black-and-white grainy photo actually extracted from a newspaper copy of searchlights pointing up into the sky in Los Angeles and highlighting something that looks like just this silverish thing floating up there. They couldn't hit it, couldn't bring it down, and yeah, it was quite the quite the experience. Quite the experience, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, some more interesting stories that come prior to 1947, before the Air Force officially gets involved in invest, investigating the phenomena. He talks about in Zuiderzee in Holland in March of 1942, an RAF bomber who was flying over saw this luminous orange disc or sphere following his plane about 100 to, to 200 yards away. So the tail gunner begins to fire rounds into it with no effect. The object departs at about 1,000 miles an hour. Of course, they make a report of this, and nothing ever comes back from it. In August of 42, a U.S. Marine sergeant in the Pacific saw formation, he said, of about 150 objects no wings or tails, wobbling slightly, he confirmed could not be Japanese planes. He said it was the most awe-inspiring and yet frightening thing that he had ever seen in his life. In August of 1942 as well, the Army Air Force, I'm sorry, the Army Air Corps tower operator named Michael Solomon in Columbus, Mississippi, saw two round reddish objects descend near the AAC Flying School hover, accelerate, and then completely speed away. Now, prior to the jet age, and even after the jet age, it should just be overwhelmingly apparent that these things can't be made by any human being, I would think. I would think that would just be a rational conclusion. Mm -hmm. and I, think, I think it is a rational conclusion. And obviously, if one has no... If a person does not have, or an organization or a government, 
does not have a supernatural worldview, as we have talked before. The only thing left on the table is extraterrestrial. Right. And so that's one of the big conclusions that people were coming to early on as this phenomena was reemerging in the modern age. But yet, <laughs> I don't know how anybody would think that any biological creature could move away so quickly at a thousand miles an hour at the drop of a hat and live inside of a ship without all of those G's just killing them. Yeah. Yeah. There were, you know, that's where I guess anti-gravity comes in and all of that kind of stuff. But it's just so obvious to me that this is spiritual in nature. But anyway, another interesting story, it comes in August of 1945. This is just shortly after the atomic bombings uh, and the surrender of Japan at the end of World War II. He says the 5th Air Force intelligence specialist aboard a C-46 flew towards Tokyo in advance of the actual occupation forces as they were coming to Japan. And he says that as the plane approached Iwo Jima at 10,000 feet, the crew saw three teardrop-shaped objects, brilliantly white, like burning magnesium, and closing in on a parallel course to the plane. The navigational needles went wild. The engine, the left engine faltered and sputtered oil. The plane lost altitude, and the crew actually prepared to ditch. Then in a close formation, the objects faded into a cloud bank. And at that moment, the engines restarted. Whether it happened because the pilots were trying to restart them, I don't know. And the crew safely flew on. And one of the plane's passengers, get this, was the few was the future UFO researcher Leonard Stringfield. Out of Cincinnati. Yeah, Cincinnati. Yeah. Is that where he was from, Cincinnati? He's from Cincinnati, yes. As a matter okay. of fact, uh, I did a little research. I don't remember now what I read, but I did a little research into him right. uh, last year when uh, – MUFON relocated to Cincinnati or located their headquarters here in Cincinnati. Right. When you do a search for MUFON Cincinnati, Stringfield's name pops up because he did a lot of independent research. And I think he did it, well, not in, totally independent. He did a lot of it in conjunction with, uh, I can't remember if it was NICAP. Over, mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah, very well known, lived over east side Cincinnati, still has family over there. Hmm. Well, as with any time in history when people have claimed to see UFOs, especially in the 20th and 21st century, there will always be, there will always be those scientists who say, hey, this is just the result of mass hallucinations, uh, meteorological balloons, atmospheric phenomena, and you know, people who claim to see these things are the butt of jokes and, and all of that sort of thing. And it's obviously not taken as seriously as it should be. One of the other phenomena is that of ghost rockets. This, I think, is in, this is interesting. He says there's nothing to show that ghost rockets sprung from Soviet or German technology. He says still over the years, a few people have continued to speculate that UFOs resulted from Nazi war technology. Have you ever read much about that? I have, actually. In Annie Jacobson's book on Area 51, she deals a little bit with the, the ghost rockets phenomena in or during World War II and post-World War II, because obviously there was a big push as the war was coming to a close 
Japan had been defeated, uh, uh, surrendered. Germany was on the brink of surrender. There was right. a big push between the among all the allies, Russia, uh, England, the United States, to capture as many of the Nazi scientists as possible because right. we knew that they were into some things that were, well, everybody knew, not just us, but everybody knew that they were into some things that were, in some cases, a bit diabolical. Other cases, they were just advanced research. Hitler was always looking for the super weapon, the, the, the one thing that could bring the European powers and the United States to their knees and Russia. And, of course, that never happened, but only because they finally got to Berlin. And in the process, then, had to round up all these scientists. I said Area 51. That's incorrect. It was in her book, Project Paperclip. I'm sorry. Well, that's okay. She talks a bit about the whole ghost rockets. I think her conclusion is that she is led to believe that what we were seeing in some cases were captured the V2 rockets, which v quite a few of those were captured, yeah. V, v, V1 and V2? V1 and V2, that some of these that were captured were being launched as part of test programs by the Allies and by Russia to determine what steps to take next in researching the capability of developing that kind of a rocket because... The Nazis developed it as a way to, to bomb England, you know, shoot over the right. other European states, drop it, on, uh, drop it on London or other places, which to everyone's thinking was, well, great, this means if you can develop this kind of a flying bomb, the next goal would be to develop the intercontinental ballistic missile, something you could fire right. from one continent and drop it on another, which is exactly what the Russians and the United States looked into specifically. So I think her conclusion is that a lot of that was military research that was being gone that was going on shortly after the war and, and in the years early years following. Yeah. Those those German V2 rockets, they made it from Europe across the English Channel over into Great Britain, didn't they? Yes, they yeah, did. Yeah, they did. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. that they did. And boy, the impact they uh, when they dropped into the city, the th those were devastating. You pretty yeah. much take out the better part of a city block with one of them. Well, I've always thought the idea that it was the Germans during World War II who came up with, you know, the Brotherhood of the Bell, the the, the German Bell. anti gravity technology. That's right. always been a fun, a fun conspiracy. And I, I say that maybe rather shamefully, considering everything that the, that the Nazis did, right? You know, as, as a horrible group of people. But I've always thought that was an entertaining conspiracy. But I don't think there's any merit to that at all, but that's just my own personal belief. But um, so these are just some items from this first chapter, which is pre-1947, pre-official pre United States investigation into the phenomena. And he also does discuss the formation of the Central Intelligence Agency and the United States Air Force as a separate entity from the Army with the National Security Act of 1947 and so forth, and staff changes and so forth, and the closure of the OSS and, and all of those good things. But uh, interesting little first chapter on the early history of UFOs prior to 1947. I think uh, when we get into, when we as we're talking about this and when we get into some of the chapters that follow, we want to keep in mind that Dolan does not approach this historic study of the UFO phenomenon, which we now call in 2021, 2022, 
the UAP phenomenon, the unidentified aerial phenomenon, he does not take like a decades approach. He doesn't study the statistics and the data, say, from 1940 to 1950, 1951 and 1960. He studies these from the perspective of the sort of the influence on the culture and the government and military response to the things that are being observed. So, you know, as you talked about here, where he deals with the prologue to 1947, things that were going on in and around North America in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and then prior to World War II and during World War II, when he gets up, up to 1947, that is sort of the kickoff year. He treats right. that year as the as the start, really, of a not only a large-scale public interest, but a wider interest and study from both agencies and military institutions within the United States. Chapter 3 and 4, Chapter 2 is specifically in 1947, which I'm going to highlight just a couple things from there. But then when you get into Chapter 3, he's talking about how the problem was managed by the United States government between 1948 and 1951, and then there's kind of a crisis and a containment period that takes place in 1952, 1953. That's when we start to hear stories and reports of UFOs over Washington and people reporting right. things not only in the newspapers and in the magazines, but government agencies and airlines reporting things that just were totally, you know, radar reports, things that were just totally kind of bizarre. So they have to take, somebody decides, we're going to take an approach that allows us to contain this within the United States. Otherwise, we're going to have mass hysteria. So, and then the other chapters, are, again, deal with how the culture was experiencing things in the United States in particular, and then how agencies and institutions responded. In chapter two, which he titles Saucers in the Skies, 1947, I want to just read just a couple of lines here from the first few paragraphs. He says, in the summer of 1947, Flying saucer mania spread across America, and this happened very, very quickly. Millions of people read about strange objects that were seen throughout the country and seemed to defy the standard rules of flight. Were flying saucers some odd, unknown natural phenomenon? Were they mechanical objects? And if so, whose? Was this a communist stratagem? Was this just war nerves or hoaxes? A new fad was it just a bunch of rubbish. Everyone, know, everyone wondered nobody knew but in june or excuse me on june 24th 1947 things kind of really began to heat up when kenneth arnold observed what he uh, described as these things skipping through the air let me just read a little bit about that because that's really where this this begins june 24th 1947 pilot and businessman kenneth arnold from boise idaho was flying near mount rainier in washington he was searching for a, a downed C-46 Marine transport that was a reward out to find that plane, and he was looking for it. While he was flying near Mount Rainier, he saw a tremendously bright flash. This is from page 17. A tremendously bright flash and noticed a formation of nine bright, extremely fast objects. And it's important to listen to how he describes them. Extremely fast objects moving along in a column he was startled because he saw no tail on the objects. Right. At first, he thought they might be experimental jets and that the Air Force was using some type of camouflage to hide the tails. He said they flew in a definite formation, but backward. That's his word, backward. In other words, the first craft was flying elevated or higher than the others that followed. 
Their flight was like speedboats on rough water or, and this is the important phrase, like a saucer would if you skipped it across water. Now, Enneth, or excuse me, Kenneth Arnold estimated the size of the objects to be about 100 feet in diameter. At first, he knew that they were near a set of peaks that were about 50 miles away. And he calculated their speed at first to be close to 1,700 miles an hour. Yeah. However, later on, he reworked his calculation, trying to allow for possible errors that he might make. And he still hit this incredible speed of 1,200 miles per hour. And in 1947, we didn't have a flying craft that re that, could, that nobody knew of that could reach even half that speed. Uh, he went on to a Yakima, Washington, told his story. He became convinced through conversations with others that maybe he was just looking at some kind of government invention along the line of a guided missile. Again, coming out of that whole ghost rockets and missiles out of the World War II era. The next day, the East Oregonian newspaper ran the first flying saucer story under the headline, Impossible, Maybe, But Seeing is Believing. And the report was picked up by the AP Wire and ended up in the Chicago Daily Tribune. And this time, this phrase, saucer-like quality, or saucer-like quickly became flying saucers. So Kenneth Arnold didn't call them flying saucers. The initial newspaper report did not call them flying saucers. That was picked up. Not long after, but a little bit later by uh, a writer for the, the uh, Chicago Tribune. Now, there's a lot of detail that Arnold goes into, or excuse me, that Dolan goes into regarding Dolan's sighting of these discs, how the story kind of navigated its way through the American culture and the newspaper and reporting devices of the time. He also covers some other things that came up shortly after that, other sightings in the area. And it was difficult to make sense you know, of what everybody was seeing. The initial result probably of many was, okay, this is some type of something that the U.S. government is developing. We're seeing this thing flying around or these things flying around in different places. But then there was also this idea, well, do we really have the capability to build craft that move that fast and navigate in such a way as to appear to defy the laws of physics? Could you stick a person in a cockpit of a craft, make sharp right and you know right angle turns and sharply ascend or sharply descend without killing or seriously damaging the pilot? You know. Yeah, without just dying immediately. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and listen, folks, even Star Trek, you know, even the creators of Star Trek had to come up with some type of inertial inertial and gravity dampening field because let's face it. You get in a starship or any kind of thing, and all of a sudden you go to warp, whatever, your name's going to be splat because you're <laughs> going to be on the back wall of something, and there's not going to be anything left. You're going to have your feet knocked out from under you. All kinds of things. Now, go ahead. I'm sorry. You look like you were going to Oh, that's it. okay. Uh, I, w I was trying to find the page from the book Skinwalkers at the Pentagon where the authors talk about after Kenneth Arnold's initial sighting, he evidently experienced uh, glowing orbs in and around his house. And I believe some other evidence of what would traditionally be known as poltergeist phenomena. That is mentioned in this book, and I'm trying to find the page number as you're talking. I probably won't find it this session, but I can come back with it later. Because I believe I mentioned it when yeah. I went over this book. 
I don't know if it was one of his children that reported that years after the fact, but I think it's interesting that either it took one of his kids to bring that to light or, and it was not known until they did so, or it was known prior to that, but never discussed because it doesn't go along with the, and an extraterrestrial understanding of right. of what Arnold saw. I've always thought it was interesting that when it comes to paranormal topics, UFOs, Bigfoot, Dogman, anything like that that just speaks to a whole nother realm of possibilities or however you want to think about that. Anytime you get into study of these kind of things, those who really do the research really want to do the research especially from a reporting perspective will often either disregard accounts that have kind of slide over phenomena associated with them or they just won't report that part so for example nobody knew right. what kenneth arnold went through after his sighting on uh, july or excuse me june uh, yeah, June 24th. Yeah, June 24th of 1947. I think I said June 2nd at one point, but that, that's not good. It was June 24th. N nobody really, unless he said something about it in a book and it was just kind of skipped over or in an interview, nobody really reported th that, that he experienced these other things after that sighting. Same thing, uh, the same concept goes for people who report on Bigfoot or cryptid accounts because there are carryover phenomena or slide over phenomena associated with that sometimes people who report a bigfoot sighting for example report right. seeing glowing lights in the forest right. or something flying overhead and the minute it sounds like oh an alien craft fl uh, flew over and dropped a bigfoot or picked one up and was hitching a ride <laughs> going somewhere that kind of stuff comes up and people are like okay i'm out of here i'm not listening to this yeah. and it gives the whole that's a lot of that gives the whole reporting aspect just this myth and legend and somebody was drinking too much of something one day or somebody's telling a story somebody's yeah. telling a story and so because of that it's just disregarded or that part of the story is left out when it came to i forget which bigfoot researcher i was listening to one day remarked that when it came to things that were turned into the bfro for example sightings that were reported right they will not deal with issues that have other usually not deal with citing reports that have other phenomena associated with it. I believe that was Wes Germer from the Sasquatch Chronicles, because I've heard him say several times that there's other aspects to the Bigfoot Sasquatch phenomena that don't really seem to fit. Right. But yet people talk about seeing orbs. There have been instances where people have talked about seeing the Bigfoot creature walk into almost like a a luminous gate that just forms in the air and then the things just and then the thing just disappears right and there's other well there's a story about two brothers in that show where they have these things uh creeping around on their property and in one instance the i don't know if the brother looks out the back window or steps off the back porch or something and on the perimeter of the property, they basically see the old hag. 
right? yeah, this, this right. demon that shows up as a person and has a wicked looking female kind of witch like right. face right and yet there's bigfoot associated with that as well yeah so it's it's interesting to me I, i'd like to research the kenneth arnold sighting more and determine whether what was reported about him and skinwalkers in the pentagon having basically poltergeist or demonic phenomena in his home whether that has been known for decades and just left out of the kenneth arnold story or it's something that has come to light in more in, in recent years right exactly. because did you notice that in that story as you were telling it what he sees prior to these disc shaped like craft you know, moving like saucers, I think he says, skipping across the sky or something. There's a bright flash in the sky. Yeah. That, that I thought was interesting. That I don't ever remember being a part of the yeah. narrative that is told popularly on TVs and documentaries and so forth. Right. He, uh, let's see, they actually quote him saying a tremendously bright flash. And then he notices them, notices these craft off at one side and he just he sees them you know he tries to observe them figure out where they're going get a, a rough estimation as to their speed it would be interesting to see what he has to say about it in his books speaking engagements lectures whatever whatever is still available in the general printed and video archives out there on the internet just to see what he actually addresses and what he doesn't, or what his family addresses and what he doesn't. Right. Because it is something that is frequently left out of the picture. Yeah. So anytime, you know, anytime, and and the military did the same thing, and they're basically they're approaching it, well, this is either theirs, ours, but it's not ET, and right. it's not spiritual. Everything yeah. comes from a from a natural science perspective. But that's how... Dolan begins this part of chapter two, dealing with specifically the Kenneth Arnold sighting. Now, that was June 24th, 1947. The big news in 1947 comes just not long after, and that's, of course, the crash, the reported reported crash of some type of vehicle in Roswell, New Mexico. They don't have, even in modern like documentaries from the last year or two, it's difficult to land on a specific date because the man who found the wreckage, actually it wasn't in Roswell, it just was reported as near there. It was, I think, 70 miles from Roswell. The man who reported that was a sheep herder named Mac Brazel. He was the foreman of the Foster Ranch in that right. area. And uh, Dolan says, 75 miles from Roswell, I heard another documentary say 70. He finds crash debris, which in one case it said it's spread over a large area. There's so much of it. And that is confirmed later on by others who go to the site. And then others say, well, there really wasn't that much. Of course, the story follows then that what was reported as crash debris is identified at first as the crashed remains of a flying saucer. Nobody knows exactly when this crash or downed craft or whatever it was, when that actually happened. There have been dates assigned to it as July the 2nd, June the 14th. July the 4th, but on Sunday, July the 6th, Brazel, who finds some of this uh, material during the summer of 1947, on July 6th, Brazel takes some of that material into Roswell, New Mexico, 
70 to 75 miles away, gives it to the sheriff uh, of the town there, George Wilcox. Wilcox sends a couple of deputies out to the ranch, and he also notifies the Roswell Army Air Force Base, or RAAF. He talks to the, he manages to reach the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard, who was the commanding officer of the 509th Bomb Group. The thing that's interesting about Roswell is the 509th Bomb Group was the atomic branch right. of the Army Air Force. These were the guys that could drop atomic bombs. And they were the only unit like that in the United States at the time, possibly the only unit in the world. We think that because we don't think the Russians or certainly the Nazis had not developed nuclear capability yet, atomic right. capability. And we don't think the Russians had either. So Blanchard is the commanding officer of the group. He orders an officer by the name of Captain, uh, later Major, Jesse Marcel to go out and investigate and it's the only, you know, as I said, this is the only military group in the world with atomic capability. Marcel goes out, uh, accompanied by another army officer, and they go first of all to Wilcox's office. They speak with Brazel, and then they go with Brazel back to the Foster Ranch. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details regarding. The There's Brazel. a lot of details. To there the is a huge amount of material that's been written <laughs> about this. It's a great story. It is a great story. Yeah. I mean, you could spend hours and hours and hours talking about this. Eventually, some of the debris makes it back to the Air Force Base, and it is identified first as a the remains of a weather balloon. And a story is put out to the press regarding that. Uh, excuse me, regarding it as being first of all a a crashed flying disc or flying saucer, and then later on it's identified as a weather balloon. Actually, just a few hours after the initial announcement, so it goes out over. The radio as right. hey we've got a crashed flying saucer and then i think it's three or four hours later comes back up well no it's not a crash flying saucer it's actually a weather balloon uh, marcel maintained for the rest of his life that the debris that he picked up and that's presented as a weather balloon in the photos that followed that photo is not the material that he picked up so the roswell story kind of goes on and on and on Again, we we could cover names and dates and this kind of thing. I think but that that, that one, was the big event of forty seven. Yeah. Go ahead. I think one of the to me, some of the interesting aspects of this story is that Colonel Blanchard, the base commander of the five oh ninth in Roswell, his superiors must have known that he was going to give a press release say, stating that the 509th had recovered a flying disc. Right. His superiors, like General Roger Ramey comes into the story just right after this. Exactly. In my judgment, Roger Ramey must have known that. Yeah. And so it's it's just fascinating to me that he makes this press release and then some hours later, it's all retracted. A photo's taken of Marcel holding up the remains of a weather balloon. His understanding of everything is just stops right there, pretty much. Uh, Sheridan Cavett doesn't clue him in on anymore. Colonel Blanchard, you know, he went on to be a three or four star general. And he died, I believe, in the 60s at the Pentagon in his office. I believe he died of a heart attack. But it's interesting to me that the retraction that the, the Air Force put out the Army Air Force put out so quickly after that story 
that Blanchard had released didn't keep that guy from moving up from a colonel to a one, two, three, four-star general. Isn't that right. isn't yeah. that just, it exactly. was it was not a career killer for William Blanchard, you know. But you know, Major um what's his name? Marcel. I don't believe he ever goes beyond being a major. No, I don't believe he, he actually does. winds up uh, leaving, and uh, I think he goes into like television repair for a while or something. Yeah, like that, right, you know? right. Um, I think there are a couple of interesting things to note about this. One was that the the base commander of the 509th issues this statement: "Hey, we've recovered a flying disc," and then the superiors who also are seeing this material say, "Hey." you know what, we actually know what this is. It's actually a weather balloon. The intent was, it seems to me anyway, the intent was to say, finally, we've got one of these things on the ground and now we can tell you what it is. It's a weather balloon. Yeah. So there was definitely, I think, an, an intent to, or the intent to deceive. Now, Oh, most definitely. Yeah. I think the, the initial press release was an intent to deceive. Right, exactly. Right from the very start. Yeah. Right from the very start. It's interesting to note that, of course, the story of Roswell was big in 1947, and then it kind of faded away. But it led to this idea that we could create kind of a cover story for everything that people are seeing. And right. and anything that you say isn't a weather balloon or, or one of our own craft or whatever, well, that's just silliness. You know, you're not seeing anything that's E.T. And, and the whole spiritual side, of course, was not even a factor. But years later, when the story begins to come out, there were other witnesses, people who were at the crash site, people who saw right. material, children of the witnesses. And these come out in other books by other authors and other publications later on who begin to retell this story and add fill-in information. And that goes on into the 80s and into the 90s. So well, well, you know, if you don't mind me jumping in, one of my favorite UFO books is Witness to Roswell by Carrie and Schmidt. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I can't say those people are lying. I can't say, tell you that they're telling the truth. But I think in respect to the whole Roswell event, that is one of the most interesting books as it deals with all of these. Uh, I believe many are firsthand. Others are second, secondary witnesses, um, spouses and children that the witnesses, original witnesses talk to, and even some third hand. Everybody from the children of people uh, in the fire department to, you know, the sheriff's office to uh, people that worked on the base. I, I just think it's fascinating. Uh, it's called Witness to Roswell. Now, they did a second book called Children of Roswell. Right. And I have, I have not read that book. But I would love, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great to just take an academic college class just on this subject alone? and have someone who is a very knowledgeable historian of the subject just teach the teach what has been laid out and try to come to the best reconstruction of, of the narrative as possible concerning all of the right. taking in to account everything that has been said about it and read the most reliable books on the subject i, I would love to do that it might be a complete waste of my life <laughs> or at least so many hours <laughs> of my life, but but I don't think any more than this podcast is. So <laughs> yeah, and I true, love this true. podcast. So it's like we get to talk about things we wouldn't normally, you know, we can't really talk about these things at work. There's no 
there's no I don't know of any college class that teaches on UFOs or Roswell. Although I do think that Jim Mars tried to do that in his latter years and was unsuccessful. But uh, right. you know, if I could walk into Vol State and say, "Hey, I'm going to teach a class on Roswell. What do you think?" Yeah, sure, <laughs> we'll pay you. We'll pay you an adjunct professor's salary to do that. That's right. I, I would say I'd be in heaven, but that would be you know uh, overshooting the matter. But <laughs> I, I would I would greatly enjoy it. You know, even if uh, you know professionally i had no you know close contacts anymore people just <laughs> turned away and said that guy he's jumped off the deep end yeah that's right of course, that's we do have the whole uap thing now which ought to give me some legitimacy but you know. right <laughs> uh, by the way on a recent episode my wife and i uh Robin and i watch uh, uh ncis los angeles Oh. And the most recent uh, one of the most recent episodes from ncis los angeles deals with, and this was an interesting approach, deals with the UAP phenomena, that a pilot uh, who is on a training mission actually is ordered to intercept something that's closing on a carrier. It's not visible, but it's showing up on radar. Mm -hmm. But it but it got so close to the carrier before it showed up, it got in close to the, it got inside the 15-mile range. He goes to intercept, and he cannot see anything, and then all of a sudden he can, and he actually collides with an object oh, and he, wow. he bails out and the way he describes it he said actually it wasn't a single object he said it was numerous objects all flying in a very tight close coordinated formation they were smaller and he said he hit one of them they were because they were flying so close together they appeared to be one object on radar mm -hmm. but they weren't birds and they try to treat it as a I think a bird strike and he goes to NCIS. He says, this is, I didn't hit a bird. And the way they address this situation is that one of the branches of the military had been experimenting with artificial intelligence and they had been using it with drone technology. Mm -hmm. And in the process, the drones were allowed to eventually as their learning curve accelerated, they were allowed to pick a target and they did. And then they got outside of the control of that branch, that, uh -huh. that part of the branch of the military. It was a development project. And so they weren't actually trying to attack, but they were trying to get in close because a group of drones, if deployed, if brought in as a small group and then deployed over a larger area, they're capable of intercepting telecommunications. And that was the goal, to pick up a coordinated set to, to get into an area that was a military area and monitor communications. But it was AI that had gotten, oh, really? it was artificial intelligence that had gotten out of the control and they were uh, of the agency and they, I, I, somehow they could land and recharge. I don't know if they were solar or what it was, but uh, some little kid who's kind of a a blogger and a podcaster in his own right. He's been he he actually sees them taking off out of this area not far from Los Angeles. He can see them. He says, "Yeah, they take off every night about such and such a time." You know? <laughs> and the whole story was just a little bit. It, it, the it's building on another set of stories related to AI, artificial uh -huh. intelligence, and how because you know we can do a great job now with artificial intelligence, in, including you know replicating the appearance of a person. And their voice patterns and things like this. So anyway, it's kind of creepy. But yeah, that was a and and the way they find this out is they contact the UAP task force, which is in existence now. 
And the UAP task force has been compiling sighting reports, but they were unable to coordinate them to come to a solution as to what people were seeing. And so they see all these reports and one of the NCIS agents works to identify a contractor who was involved with developing this this technology and it got away. Right. Have you ever seen that video of 200 drones fall out of the sky in China's Hangzhou province? No. Panic spectators run for cover. <laughs> yes, you can find this on YouTube. There's this shot of this camera. You know, it's pointing up into the sky and it's nighttime and you can see these hundreds of bright lights. And they're the lights on the bottom of drones. And it was supposed to be some type of light show that was being put on, you know, through the use of drones. And something happened and these things just start falling out of the sky. I mean, I should laugh because somebody, you know, may have been hurt, but, you know, they're not very big. Right. But it always reminds me of that episode of WKRP in Cincinnati where... <laughs> The turkeys. Carl, the station manager gets the bright idea to push live turkeys out of a helicopter. Yes, <laughs> I honestly thought those things could fly. Yeah, I understand, but evidently they kill people too. You yeah, know? or they fall on people too. So. They're hitting the pavement like bags of wet cement. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's awful! Oh, the humanity of it all. <laughs> oh. Well, we, we digress a little bit, but oh, that is much fun. That's right. It is fun. But it's it's just an interesting topic. Now, when we look back at how in nineteen forty seven Dolan covers this as a pivotal excuse me, not a pivotal, a pivotal year, because it's the Kenneth Arnold sighting and then Roswell. Right. He also brings into this discussion then that that's when the FBI begins to get involved on a formal basis. On July the ninth, Probably the same day that the Roswell debris, by the way, that actually was shipped to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which on a tangent, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base was the place where many of the Nazi scientists, as they were being funneled into the United States, that's where they were housed. Really? Yeah, at Wright-Patterson, yeah. yeah. Uh, And not all of them, but many of them, and then they were shipped on to other places. But uh, on on the 9th of July, which is probably the day that the Roswell debris arrives in Wright-Patterson, Brigadier General George F. Shulgin, who is the chief of the Requirements Intelligence Branch of the Army Air Force Intelligence, requests FBI assistance in the problem of flying disks. So there's a formal request to get the FBI involved in that same year. There's kind of a media clampdown. He does cover another sighting, which I have heard about and read about. I actually did not think that much of it, but he covers something which we won't talk about today, but that's the what they call the Maury, M-A-U-R-Y, Maury Island Saga, which right. happens in that year. Um, you can, listeners can Google that and look that up. But in the middle of all this, the United States government passes the National Security Act then, same year, July 26th, 1947. This act creates a unified national military establishment, a national security council, and get this, the Central Intelligence Agency. Right. So all of that happens in the same year. And uh, there are some other things that are documented here in the 1947 uh, year that he talks about. In he, he alludes to the MJ-12, if that actually existed, the MJ-12 group, which came up in 1947, 1948. Right. But that we was one of our first podcast subjects, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So 
And then, you know, what are the conclusions? Are we looking at Soviet craft? Are we looking at who knows what? And right. where, where is it coming from? But that's the pivotal year. Those are the major, those are events that people will have heard about. The Kenneth Arnold sighting, certainly Roswell, but that's also the year the FBI gets involved. And it's also the year that other security agencies are created. And certainly some of that comes out of this whole thing that's going on with UFOs, what we now call UAPs. Some of it is very likely, in my opinion, the result of the beginning of the Cold War, post-World War II, the beginning of the Cold War. And of course, the research that we brought into the United States in locating Nazi scientists at the end of World War II. Right. There was a you know, great, I, I, need, great need to protect information. Yeah. Yeah, most certainly. Okay, well, that wraps up our discussion for chapters one and two from UFOs and the National Security State, Chronology of a Cover-Up, 1941 to 1973 by Richard Dolan. This is just chapters one and two, but we're going to wrap it up with that for today. Sounds good. Okay. We'll see you, everybody. Have a good day. Have a good day. Have a good day. Bye. 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 Bye.